Welcome to Mints on Air and the first episode of Client Corner. Perspectives from founders, financiers, and friends. I am Josh Fox. In each episode of this podcast, I will be joined by an entrepreneur, an investor, or a member of the startup community. My guests will share their experiences in starting and running a business, investing in a business, and helping to support a business. I hope that my conversations with my friends will provide valuable advice to the audience, help those who are trying to build their business to make it successful, and inspire others who are thinking about starting a new venture. If you're interested in being a guest on my show or have ideas for a new episode, please reach out to me. My first guest is Jerry Williamson, an experienced CEO and board member. Jerry, welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Jerry, you and I have known each other for about six years now. We first started working together when you joined the board of NanoView Biosciences, and then we continued working together after you became its chief executive officer. We sold NanoView several years later, and now you serve as CEO of Syngenics, which we also work on together. In your 30 years of experience in the life sciences industry, you've specifically focused on the research, diagnostic, device, and analytical product space. What is your perspective on the current state of those markets? Well, things are changing quite rapidly in those markets. 30 years ago, diagnostics was a bad word. It was you know, a simplistic way of looking at disease. And the way in which analyses were done were very simplistic. And in that period of time, we've gone through the genetic and genomics era. We're now entering a proteomics era. So things have become quite complicated, but also quite interesting. So if you're kind of interested in, in life sciences, as I have been in, in my entire career, it's an exciting time. More recently, the markets have fluctuated quite a bit. We went through a very exciting period three, four years ago, which led up to, as you pointed out, my experiences with NanoView. And we're now kind of in a bit of a trough. And what happens in, in all of life sciences, and it's triggered largely by biopharma and biotech, but supporting uh, life sciences such as those industries that I focus on, diagnostics devices, and more so uh, research use tools, seem to follow those patterns. And right now we're in a, in a little bit of a trough, but it's it's cyclical. You know, if you've, if you've done it as long as I have, you know things are going to change. So right now, I think we're, we're in a bit of a lull, although there are some recent indications, and I pay very close attention to financings and uh, mergers and acquisitions and new technology introductions. I, I do feel like we're starting to come back on the upswing. That's good to hear. Certainly, I've seen those troughs and peaks as well, and, and it is cyclical. I'm glad to hear that you're seeing some, some positive directional movement. I'd like to ask you about your current role as CEO and a director of Syngenics. What is the mission of Syngenics? So Syngenics is an interesting early technology company. I, I think if I take it at the highest level, we're looking to advance precision medicine. And we have tools that we provide to the research and clinical community that can advance patient care, very high level. If you peel away the onion one layer deeper, the way in which we do that is by looking at immune response. So in any disease or in any therapeutic intervention, the immune system, the human immune system will react in a way. So our technology and our products and our services are aimed at delivering specific information to help translational and clinical researchers better understand what's going on with the immune system. And then 
at a very specific level, what we look for are antibody production. So when you're exposed to a disease or when you're uh, treated with a, a drug, the first response your body will have is to produce antibodies. And we've learned this through the whole pandemic, right? So, you know, I don't have to educate people any longer. It's, you know, everybody understands the importance of your antibody response. So what we do at Syngenics, our mission is to look for changes in antibody production that relate to the immune response that would then allow a better, more precision medicine treatment. Could you talk a little bit more about where it is in its corporate life cycle in terms of product development? Sure. So it's an interesting company in that it's in a bit of a restart phase. So Syngenics has been around for commercially for over eight years and it launched pre-pandemic. And because we are looking at the immune system, you could imagine that once everybody in the world was focused on everything COVID, the types of things that we do, which are not focused on COVID or SARS-CoV-2, came to a halt. So all the immunologists in the world basically didn't pay attention to us. So since the pandemic has eased and since you know we're showing importance of the, the biomarkers that we look at in the immune system, things are starting to come back up again. So I, I joined the company about a year ago. I look at it as, as somewhat of a restart. We're an early stage research use products company. We have about 45, 50 people in the company, globally dispersed, and we can talk about that if you're interested. But as far as our life cycle goes, we're really in that early stage growth, even though we're you know, eight, 10 years old. And specifically as it relates to the global operations of Syngenics, could you talk about the challenges associated with having employees that are geographically spread out? Uh, where are they? How do you manage that? So I can answer that in a very short way, and that is it means that I have to stay up at midnight and wake up at midnight. Uh, we have an operational team based in Malaysia, in Kuala Lumpur, which sounds like an odd place to be, but in, in fact, from a, a worker employee base, it's a, a very efficient way in Asia Pacific to run our business. So our operational hub is in uh, Kuala Lumpur, I call it KL. We have a research and development and bioinformatics team in Cape Town, South Africa, which sounds very odd and it is odd. Uh, and there are lifestyle reasons why we've centered ourselves in, in Cape Town. And then we have a commercial team that's dispersed throughout. We have a, a hub in the Boston area, which is where I'm based. And then we have other direct commercial and distribution relationships throughout the world. So we have a direct workforce, uh, commercial workforce in Europe, the uh, UK. We have a direct workforce in Asia Pacific, and uh, we have a direct work workforce in the US. So back to my original very quick flippant response, I spend a lot of my time on phone calls at really crazy hours. And that's, I think, one of the biggest challenges of, of my business that it's frankly, it's something that I was not fully prepared for when I, I became CEO of the company. It's, it's, it's truly my number one challenge is, is communication across different time zones. I can relate to that with clients in different time zones. It can be challenging and also working on transactions to actually manage that and, and have a schedule that is well-structured and gives you time off from work. Another challenge with any early stage life sciences company is, is funding. Um, to the extent that this has been publicly disclosed to date, can you share with our audience more about how Syngenics has financed its business? How much capital has it raised from whom either the names of the investors or the types of investors that you raised capital from? Sure. So the company was bootstrapped by its founders from early stage friends and family and reached a point 
where it needed to go out for institutional capital. And this goes back to 2019, I believe. Uh, it predates me, obviously. And in the process of looking at all the potential investor landscape, one particular investor group rose to the top. They took a particular interest in proteomics, which is broadly speaking what we do. That company is Asuma Equity. It's a private equity firm. It's based in Stockholm. And with offices that are growing, they decided they would have three main verticals. One is kind of clean energy, one is sustainability, and the other is healthcare. And they decided to buy the company. So since 2020, we've been majority controlled by Suma Equity. So we are a, a PE, private equity-backed company, which is a lot different. And, and we may get into this in a few minutes, a lot different from my exposure in, in other companies that I've been involved with. But we have one main investor. I can't really go into the amount of investment because they are private and you know they have portfolio companies and things that they would prefer that I don't disclose. Uh, but it was a it was a sizable um, investment and it was a controlling interest. Thanks, Jerry. On the topic of investors, and and you did allude to this in terms of what it can be like to work with investors as a CEO, and different types of investors may have different relationships with CEOs as a result. And specifically, I'm thinking of private equity versus venture capital. Could you talk about generally what your relationships have been like over time? whether exogenics or generally in your entire career, when you're a CEO, what is it like to work with investors? What are those relationships like? And how might it differ depending on whether an investor is a PE firm or a venture capital firm or another type of investor like a strategic? Sure. And it's a great question because I spend a lot of my time trying to make sure that I'm getting the most out of my investors and delivering the most to my investors. Because at the end of the day, a CEO's primary job is to deliver value back to its investors, right? So I do think about this a lot. A private equity firm investment is entirely different from a venture capital investment. And I'll contrast that those two, as well as talk about not a strategic investor, but what, a, what it's like to work for a strategic, because I've done that. I've, I've maybe not as a CEO, but I've been divisional president of a couple of companies that we exited and sold to large life science multinational companies, the likes of GE Healthcare and Danaher. So I'm, I have a lot of experience in reporting to you know, a senior board of a, of a multinational large company, and, and they interestingly manage their investment, meaning the performance of my company or my division, in a not dissimilar way to a private equity firm. So my most recent role in Syngenics uh, reporting to Suma reminds me a lot of what it used to be like to work for GE or Danaher in that you know you have clear objectives you have one owner you know they're the ones that are calling the shots it's a bit more of a top down management process in that you need to conform to what their expectations are the one in the middle is venture capital so i also spent three different companies as ceo uh, that were bent venture capital backed and there it's much more of the opposite direction in terms of management as opposed to top-down management. It's it's more bottoms-up management. Frankly, as a CEO, you manage your board, you manage your venture capital team, and you ask them for their assistance as opposed to in a private equity or a strategic where they're telling you how to manage, right? So it's, it's, it's an entirely different way in which you need to interact. That said, the advice that you get from your board members is as a CEO is entirely dependent on your interaction with them. So it doesn't matter if they're giving you the instructions or you're giving them the instructions. 
really it's what's the outcome? What are you trying to achieve with the business? And that doesn't change. That's the same, whether it's private equity or venture capital, you're, you're trying to build value. And uh, I spend all of my time focused with my board members on how do we build value? The measures may be a little bit different. The motives may be different. If you have a venture capital structured investment team, you may have differences among those venture capital firms, which I've had. You know, they they may they may have different expectations. They have different exit expectations. They have different value creation expectations. You have a consistent expectation in a strategic or in a private equity. But that said, it's still about building value. So I I don't I try not to worry myself too too much uh, over the differences and just try to focus on building value. That makes sense. And as it relates to the, this topic of investors and your relationships with investors. I've had many entrepreneurs over my career express a hesitancy towards raising money from VCs. Uh, there are statements that I've heard that suggest in the minds of certain entrepreneurs that VCs will take control of my company or VCs will take a higher percentage ownership in my company than they deserve. What do you think of those assessments? It's entirely market dependent. Desperate times require desperate measures and therefore you may need to give up more to your VC investors. In life sciences, the majority of what happens in life sciences is venture capital based. There's a, there's a lot of private equity. I understand that. But you reach private equity, at least from my experiences, at a later stage. I've worked in, largely speaking, earlier stage companies, which traditionally, historically, are you know series A, series B level. That's a, a venture round of you know, five to ten million dollars, ten to twenty million dollars, and you don't really have any private equity interest at that level. Private equity tends to get involved when they can see how they can massage a business toward, you know, a better return. But that business has to be, you know, a sustainable, ongoing concern. If you're in an early stage life science company, you know, you're hoping for the best, but who knows how it's going to go. So most of my, a lot of my experience, at least from an investor relations perspective has been in, in the VC area. But I don't, I don't hold an opinion, a, a negative opinion against venture capital. It's quite the opposite. You know, I am very supportive of the venture mindset of you know, building value. I actually worked for a venture firm earlier in my career. I worked for flagship ventures or now flagship pioneering. So I have you know, direct exposure as to you know, what the mindset is in a, in a venture firm. And I have, I have no concerns whatsoever with what they're trying to get out of it. And, and to your point, you know, if you have a CEO that's concerned about or a founder that's concerned about giving up too much control to a venture capitalist, well, then go find another source of investment. If you could do it, great. But the reality is, I think in, in this day and age, the, the most common way to raise capital in life science businesses is through the venture community. On the topic of investors, what do you look for in identifying an investor that you think would be a good partner for you? What distinguishes one investor from another? I want active investors. I want people who are going to sit on the board and are going to challenge me, are going to challenge the operations, the, the um, expense process that we have, what our expenditure process, are going to challenge me on my view of how big we can build the company, of what our valuation story is. I want very active people. And, I, and I've been fortunate in my career to have very active board members, contributors, advisors, and even, to, even with our current majority investor, Summa Equity. I have a team of three people from Suma who sit on my board, which one could argue overweights the decision-making of the board, but they also control the company. 
but they're three very different people. I look to each of them for different instruction and advice. So I, I'd say what I look for in an investor is someone who's going to contribute. I don't want a passive investor. I don't want somebody that's going to sit in the background. It's, it's a, frankly, it's a waste of a CEO's time if you have to be chasing people and they're not going to contribute. That's valuable insight. Thanks, Jerry. On the topic of being a CEO, so shifting gears now from investors, financing sources to being a CEO, having been the CEO of multiple companies, what would you say is a constant in serving as CEO? What are the similarities, regardless of the company, that you see in your role as CEO? I think the first most important aspect of being a CEO is to pay attention to your employees and your advisors. Surround yourself with people who are smarter in the room than you are. And that's constant. You know, I, I always look for people, whether it's a board member, whether it's hiring a new employee, or whether it's bringing on an advisor, I always look for people that can contribute more than my knowledge base, which is frankly hard to do. So that's always constant. Making sure that you're not skimping on that. So if you're going to hire somebody, make sure that they're the best person and you're going to have to pay for it. If you're going to bring on, this is a plug for you, Josh, if you're going to bring on an advisory firm, a corporate law firm, make sure you're working with people that know what they're doing, you know, and don't, don't go short on that. It's, you're really wasting your time. So surround yourself by the smartest people you possibly can. That's, that's constant. Make sure that you're communicating appropriately. And that's, that takes a lot of time and a lot of effort as a CEO. And it's something you can't ignore. You know, whether it's your employees, whether it's your advisors, whether it's your board, whether it's being part of the community, you know, you need, and that doesn't change either, depending on the types of companies that I work for. It's, you know, I have a few fundamentals in running companies. One of them is communication. One of them is making sure that expectations are properly developed and properly articulated. And then you're, you're measuring against those expectations. You know, it's, it's you know, I, I know it sounds a little oversimplistic, but as a CEO, if you can get those three things right every day, I think you'll do well, regardless of the company, regardless of the industry, regardless of the application area, the product, whatever. So I've, I've tried to stay true to that in the different CEO roles that I've, I've held. That makes sense. Now, moving to your time at Nanoview, where you were a CEO and a director before it was sold, could you talk more about how, what was Nanoview's mission prior to its sale? Yeah. So interestingly, Nanoview's top-level mission is not different from what I said for Syngenics, which is to advance precision medicine. The way in which that found its way into the marketplace is entirely different. So without getting too technically detailed, Nanoview had, has an imaging platform that allows people to look at interesting biology molecules that otherwise were not able to be imaged. And the reason why it's, I say it's interesting is because these biological molecules, they call them extracellular vesicles, or some call them exosomes, contain information about a cell when you're not looking at a human cell. So they're infinitely smaller, could be a million times smaller than a cell, but they carry discrete information that may be relevant for diagnosis of disease or treatment of disease, et cetera. And the, the challenge that Nanoview had was twofold. One, technically, can we really see these things? And we, do we believe that? Can we prove? So that's a whole scientific question. But then can we go out and, and explain to the, the scientific research community of the importance of looking at that and convince them that they should be looking at that? So 
no one was really doing that. There are a few groups. I, I wouldn't say that we were the only pioneers, but we were on the forefront of what was going on in that in that space. And we had to, time and time again, we would sit with a, a researcher or a pharmaceutical company. Those were our customer groups. And they would say, well, why do I care about looking at these tiny little bubbles that you know are related to cells? You know, I don't, I don't necessarily believe that what you're doing has value scientifically, translationally, or clinically. And we have to go through the whole, this is why, and you know, proof sources and everything else. So that's a, that's a, a huge challenge. Um, the company fortunately made some strong progress. You know, it's, a, it's also about timing in the marketplace. It so happened that there were a lot of people that started looking at this when we were looking at it. And you know, kind of a rising tide lifts all boats. So we gained the benefit of a bunch of people saying, hey, maybe this is really cool. And the last comment I'll make about Nanoview in that regard is we also got really lucky in that it turns out that these little tiny bubbles, these exosomes, are about the size of viral vectors. And there's a whole lot of interest if anybody listening uh, knows the, the whole viral vector gene delivery space. There's a lot of interest right now in how can you engineer these little bubbles or viral vectors. And it so happens that we could image them. So people started like getting really excited about, hey, you, you know, you can you can help CAR T therapy and you can help, you know, viral vector gene therapy. So a bit of that was, you know, luck, serendipitous. <laughs> I'll take it when I can get it. <laughs> um, Gary, while well, I listen to you just talk now about exosomes and the science, you even said without getting too technical, I can't help but be impressed when I listen to you as as this chief executive officer, somebody who I think runs businesses who is not a scientist by training or education. Could you talk about what it's like to learn science? How do you go about doing that when you come into a new company, which ends up resulting in you being able to describe all of the science that Nanoview was involved in so eloquently as you just did? Well, thanks for the compliment. I'm not so sure how eloquent I am, but you know, at its core, I, I love life sciences. And so if you're, not, if you're not stimulated by that, and it doesn't matter if I'm talking about exosomes or if I'm talking about autoantibodies and syngenics, or if I'm talking about cellular imaging and other businesses that I work with, it's, it's fascinating to me. Human biology is evolving so quickly. It, our understanding of it is evolving. The, the biology is already evolved. But our understanding of human biology, every day we're faced with new questions that only lead to further questions. So what I find really fun and exciting is to get at least enough understanding to ask the questions about, okay, well, what don't we know about this and how might that be interesting out there? So that drives me. It's, it, you know, not everybody is driven by that type of thing. Because that drives me, I don't have any problem grazing the surface. Start talking to me about, you know, the molecular makeup of, you know, a particular uh, disease. And I, I, I get lost in that. So I, I know when to keep my mouth shut and I, I just make sure that I, I stick to what I know and, ask questions about what I don't know. <laughs> With respect to NanoView and our experience together, we did go through a sale process. And I know you've had other experience with M&A and exit events. So looking back over your experience, not just with one particular sale, but in general, what would you want entrepreneurs who have never been through a sale process to know? Can you describe what the process is like? What should entrepreneurs expect when they're selling their company? In my limited experience, and although I've been probably through two or three exits, they're very different. 
I don't think any exit is the same. So if I were to give any advice, which I'm probably not qualified to do, I would say be really careful to stereotype what a potential exit would be. And I'll explain that by way of anecdote or, or illustration with NanoView. As you know, Josh, when we uh, were working together at NanoView, we had a financing process that was underway. Our plan was not to exit the company. Our plan was to go for the next round of financing. We were on track, growing well. We had a lot of the technology nailed down. We started to get a bunch of customer traction. We felt that we could really build value. Markets were starting to turn. This was 2022 or 2021 when we started the process. And markets were starting to turn a little bit. We were getting nervous about our ability to raise the next round. And it so happened that, as I told you, sometimes luck intervenes. And we had a couple of strategics approach us and say, well, if you're looking for financing, either we can contribute to the financing or would you be interested in selling the company? None of the management team wanted to sell the company. I, the, the board was kind of, depending on, you know, companies are always for sale. So depending on what the investors are going to get in return, they're certainly open to the conversation. But we, my point is we, we didn't plan to sell the company, but as it turns out, it was the right solution for us. And it turned out to be a good exit and we were all pleased by it. Employees did well, investors did well, technology did well, technology exists today in another company. So I would say to any CEO looking at exits or what to plan for is don't get too tripped up in what you think is going to happen. Just be more flexible on what possibly could happen based on your conversations. And and also don't spend too much time on one outcome, right? So it's it's always going to change. Even if you're looking for a, another round of, of capital, you're going to reach investors that are going to have different questions, different outcome expectations, et cetera. So you need to be r- really flexible and understand that it's really not about you. You're building a company and you think the company has done well and you want people to value the company. But in order to get to that point, you just really need to be flexible. And when comparing different potential acquirers in your experience, what do you look for? Clearly, when you're in an auction process or you're looking for a buyer, price is going to be the first thing that entrepreneurs think about, but it can't just be about price, can it? No. So I personally want to make sure that the, the basic value drivers of the company are intact. So first and foremost, you know, if I've worked for the company and I've brought people into the company or people have brought me to the company, I've developed relationships with those employees. Those employees are committed to the company. They're the reason why the company's successful. So it doesn't always work out this way. And I completely appreciate that. This may be, you know, somewhat Pollyannish, but I always think about employees first, you know, in an exit. And I want to make sure that somehow, some way, those employees are going to benefit. Either they're going to remain with the company, uh, which has happened often in, in the transitions that I've been involved with or managed. Or they're going to be rewarded, you know, if you have an employee stock option program, whatever the the metric is that you're looking at. So first and foremost, people have given me their uh, trust to take care of them if they are willing to put in the time and energy and effort in the company. And and I think that any CEO should acknowledge that first and foremost. There's always a price issue, as you point out. You know, all things being equal, you want to go to the highest bidder if they're going to take care of your employees, my first point. And then lastly, the technology. I don't want, I wouldn't want to exit companies where they're just looking to competitively put the technology on the shelf. And, you know, and there are a lot of exits that happen that way. They just say, look, you know, this company 
I've got to buy them out so that I can get them out of my competitive landscape. So to me, that's not very exciting. So I I try to make sure that there's an advancement of the technology. Uh, That's the whole reason why I got excited about working with the company in the first place. This goes back to the earlier part of our conversation. I, I like technology. I like science. And I would be very hesitant if somebody approached me and said, you know, we're going to buy you and we're going to crush the technology. That, to me, that doesn't make any sense. Right. And what can you share about your experience in general with post-closing integration? What does that period look like? And how would you advise companies who are acquiring businesses to think about integration um, and, and improving that process? Critical, critical concept. So in my career, I, I've been responsible for two full integrations. More recently, the Nanoview sale, we sold the company. They said, see you later, Jerry. And that was it. And that's okay. And typically, that's how it goes with the CEO. In two prior situations, one uh, exit with GE Healthcare, and then perhaps because of that exit, the second exit I was involved with uh, with Danaher, I was the integration specialist. So for good or for bad, maybe I just didn't run out the door fast enough. They said, you know what? You should be the person that makes sure that this company, the reason why we bought it, is sustained. So I do have at least those two experiences. Very different, different organizations. But I do, I, I, I found in that, and, and in both situations, I was there for at least a year, probably two at GE and maybe three at Danaher. I mean, it's a fundamental issue. They're buying the company because of some level of value. Forget about the competitive threat but some level of value. So you have a responsibility for carrying that value on, but it's under a new company. So it's a new culture. You have to understand that culture dynamic and new people. Employees may not feel good. They may feel great. I mean, there are so many dynamics to integration and making you know, a company that you spent your entire time building value. Now it's part of a, a new family. And how do you continue that? I don't have a formula for that other than not different from how I would run a company if I wasn't being acquired, which is focus on the employees, focus on the communication, focus on the expectations, uh, make sure that you're measuring that, and it'll all work out. And in those two instances, it did work out. Those those were two very successful integration exercises. And to this day, w- one of those companies is part of, well, no, actually, both of them now are part of Danaher, interestingly. I, I, I sold, I was in, responsible for the integration of Viacore, which is a protein interaction company which found its way from GE Healthcare into a rebranding company called Cytiva. And then Cytiva was acquired by Danaher. So it kind of went both ways. And then the second example was a company called Genetics, which we sold to Danaher. And it has found its home in molecular devices, one of the ACOs of Danaher. So actually, both of them are now part of Danaher. Not completely surprising to me in that the life sciences community is the small world. Yes, very much so. Just a couple more questions, Jerry, while, while you're on the show. Throughout the conversation today, we've spoken about relationships, relationships that you've had with investors, other employees, focusing specifically on your team. How would you describe your management style? I look for opportunities to coach people. I'm a very light touch, hands-off manager. I set expectations. I make sure that those people are aware of those expectations and we have regular measurement against those expectations. And then we have a plan if we are meeting, exceeding or not those expectations. So it's, it's a, again, it's a fairly simple formula for me. Oftentimes that leads me toward 
what are the what are the areas that I can help you become better? Where I can help you become better? And those are coaching opportunities. I, I think that's a I, I I won't say that's a getting old thing, but in a way it is. You know, you kind of reach a point in your life where I'd much rather work with people who I, I want to work with and want to work with me, and I can help maybe help them along in their career. So I always look for those. First and foremost, I always look for those opportunities. There are some instances where you know you need the right discipline. So surrounding yourself, I, this is early on in our conversation today. I said you need to surround yourself with the right team. So if you're if there's a deficit in the team, you know you don't have enough financial expertise, you don't have enough operational expertise, sales expertise, whatever. You know you need to fill those gaps. But I'd say generally speaking, with regard to relationships, the most rewarding times in my life, you know, have been when people said, "Hey, would you you know would you coach me or would you be a mentor for me?" And and the same is true for me, by the way. I have many mentors in my life. I still, you know, stay in touch with most of them. Some of them, depending on where I'm, what I'm doing in my life, I'm, I'm more involved with than others. But I would say there are probably a dozen mentors that I've met in my entire career that I wouldn't think twice about calling them up and saying, hey, you know, I need a little bit of coaching here. Can you help me? Now, the topic of mentoring for my last question, what advice would you give to someone who's just starting out in their career? As a CEO, I would say, don't think you know everything. There's a tendency, I'll be honest, if you're hired as a CEO, people are looking to you as the solution. And they're looking to you if they're employees, they're looking to you to be the leader, the, you know, the guide. If they're investors, they're looking to you to build value, make money. And all of that's true. But you should never feel that you know it. You need to, it goes back to the comment we just, I just made. You need to surround yourself with people that are smarter than you. Don't think you have all the solutions because you don't. You know, things change so quickly, particularly in our business, life sciences. But I think that's probably a fair statement in, in, in most industries that, you know, the evolution that we're seeing right now in terms of the amount of information and the speed at which information comes through, it's mind boggling. And you can't, you can't take a position that you know it all. So find people that can help you, uh, find mentors, find advisors people that you trust that are going to give you honest opinions. To me, that's perhaps the most important advice I would give anybody who's just starting out as a CEO. That's great advice, Jerry. And thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience today and for being my very first guest on the very first episode of Client Corner. It's been a pleasure having you. I'm grateful to you. Thanks, Jerry. Thanks for having me, Josh. It's been uh, a fun time for me. I appreciate it. And to our audience, until next time on Client Corner, keep on building.